Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 574, December the 2nd, 1995, £1.50. I can't believe we're looking at December. It's, this, this year is just gone. It's gone so quickly, hasn't it? It's unbelievable. The cover star this week is Lane Staley of Alice in Chains. World exclusive Alice in Chains US chart topping sensations. Plus, John Bon Jovi banned by Brit government. Green Day, Billy Joe charged with indecent exposure. Paradise lost 1 million and counting. Seattle 96 from Pearl Jam to Foo Fighters. Who will lead grunge into the 21st century? Silverchair, Daniel, where's your choosers? Ash, Kung Fu Chaos. Whale, hobo humping anyone? Scratch card, numbers inside. Plus Thunder, Dog Eat Dog, Reef, Filter and Bush. Just a small caveat before we begin this week's episode. The piece on the front, Seattle 96 from Pearl Jam to Foo Fighters, I've gone ahead and looked at this and it's two pages on a big table just pretty much saying what each band are up to at the moment and uh, what they're going to do this year. And it doesn't really tell us anything about what's going to happen in 1996. Um, There's not really anything of interest in it at all. Everyone at this point, well, we all know what all these bands are doing and, you know, where they're going to be and where they end up, etc, etc. So I think reading it out is kind of pointless. Just thought I'd get that in quickly. I'm going to begin this week's episode and issue of Kerrang! with the um, following stimulants. So this issue was created with the following stimulants. The new Deftones album, an excellent start. An ear bending by Terravision drummer Shutty. Deputy editor Mike Peake's new rosy coloured hair. A length of black pudding. A whole hour devoted to Terry Thomas on Channel 4. Phil Alexander's missing reef gig. Skid Row's Gumby anthem, You've Gone Wild. Phone calls from Barney Greenway. Paul Elliott's face after Arsenal were hammered by Tottenham. Garbage's shagmongous queer vid. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Starting this week where we always begin news. Pearl Jam vocalist Eddie Vedder has finally spoken about the day he nearly died on stage. The incident occurred in front of 50,000 people in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park last June when Vedder rushed off stage a handful of songs into Pearl Jam's set. At the time it was rumoured that Vedder's illness was drug related, however he has now revealed in a rare US interview that he was suffering from a severe food poisoning. It sounds like it's not really a big deal, but I thought I was going to die, Vedder explained. We've been in some pretty tense situations as far as crowd control goes and I usually pull it off. I think they thought I was going to pull it off. I'm not being a martyr or anything, but it was hard. Then I was looking through the set list and it was like, I just can't do this. That was one of the low moments, but there was nothing I could do. I'm human. Neil Young subsequently stepped in to help Pearl Jam complete the show. The rest of their last US tour was similarly problematic with a number of dates being cancelled and the band struggling to find suitable venues as a result of their dispute with Ticketmaster. In the interview, Vedder criticised the US Justice Department's failure to take action against what he insists is a monopoly held by the ticket agency. It's similar to the justice we saw in the OJ Simpson trial in LA, he said. You can hire people and make it work. That's what they did. They had the dream team. 
He went on to talk about his passion for Monkey Wrench Radio, Pearl Jam's travelling pirate radio station, which is set to receive a permanent home in Seattle. He admitted that he was more comfortable working in a medium where he couldn't be misquoted and enjoyed spinning records and talking to fans on a cellular phone. I feel the radio thing has only reached 10% of its potential, he said. I don't think we'd be a threat to commercial radio at all. You'd have to have pretty eclectic tastes to tune in. What we play is even under college radio as far as being underground goes. Fedder also claimed that his lifestyle was more routine than it had been portrayed in the press. The mystery is probably way more interesting, he explained. All I do is my laundry and pick up coffee at 7-Eleven. I have a broad range of interests, which is probably why we don't have a record out this year. The Pearl Jam frontman has contributed two new songs to the soundtrack of the film Dead Man Walking, which will be released next year. Fedder teamed up with Pakistani singer Nusrat Fatel Ali Khan to record The Face of Love and Long Road. The movie stars Sean Penn as a killer who is on death row. Bon Jovi frontman John Bon Jovi was banned from co-hosting Radio 1's breakfast show with Chris Evans last week by the British government's Department of Employment because he didn't have the correct work permit. Apparently, an employee at the government department heard that Bon Jovi would be acting as a DJ on the breakfast show on Tuesday, November 21st and reported him to higher authorities. The Department of Employment subsequently ruled that Bon Jovi would be allowed to appear on the show with Evans but couldn't touch any records. A government spokesman claimed, Someone with a work permit to be an entertainer or performer cannot suddenly become a broadcaster. Bon Jovi himself has not commented on the incident, although he did thank the Department of Employment for their interest when he finally appeared on air. He has also revealed that he almost lost his hearing after an accident in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil last month. The people in the next hotel room to me were having a hell of a fight, he told Kareng. I didn't want to bother them or ask anybody else to interfere, so I shoved some tissues in my ears. When I woke up, the tissue had got jammed in my left ear. I had to go to an ear surgeon to get it pulled out. I really thought I'd fucked up my good ear. Green Day vocalist guitarist Billy Joe Armstrong was arrested on indecent exposure charges on Tuesday, November 21st. Armstrong was arrested for allegedly mooning the audience at one of the band's first US tour dates in Milwaukee. The 23-year-old Armstrong was leaving Milwaukee's Mecca Arena after the show and about to climb into a vehicle with a number of other people when police cars surrounded the vehicle and placed him in custody. Armstrong subsequently paid a fine and was released. It is unlikely that further charges will be brought by authorities uh, in Milwaukee. Green Day are currently playing a large theatre small arena tour of the US in support of their new album Insomniac which is riding high in the Billboard charts. The band will release a new single Stuck With Me in the UK on December 27th they will also return to these shores for a full tour in March. Silverchair vocalist Daniel Johns was rushed to hospital in Melbourne, Australia recently after a stage diving accident left him unconscious and minus his trousers. <laughs> Sorry, probably very serious, <laughs> a very serious story. The incident took place um, during a concert in Melbourne when the 16-year-old singer attempted to dive into the pack crowd. However, instead of catching in, the crowd inexplicably moved out of the way and Johns crashed to the floor. As he lay unconscious, Johns had his trousers ripped off. The singer was subsequently taken to Melbourne Hospital where he drifted in and out of consciousness. In fact, a series of wild reports flew around claiming that he had died as a result of his injuries. Johns actually left hospital within two days and continued Silverchair's hugely successful world tour. Their debut album, Frog Stomp, has now sold more than 1 million copies in the US. This story was uh, mentioned last week, I think it might have been the week before, in 
um, in American news. Biohazard will record their next studio album as a free piece following the recent shock departure of guitarist Bobby Hamble. Hamble was allegedly dismissed due to increasing personal problems between himself and the rest of the band. Bassist vocalist Evan Seinfeld, guitarist Billy Graziade and drummer Danny Schuler. The band have now completed work on most of the material for their new album and are due to start recording before Christmas with Seinfeld and Graziade handling the guitar parts. As yet though, they have still not confirmed the producer, although both Brendan O'Brien and ex-Led Zeppelin bassist John Paul Jones are both apparently under consideration. The album will be released next year. Bobby Hamble, meanwhile, has apparently hooked up with White Devil, the band formed by ex-Cromag's men Harley Flanagan and Paris Mayhew. Civ, the fast-rising New York hardcore band, released a new single, Can't Wait One Minute More, on December the 4th. It's backed by the promo video which took US MTV by storm this summer. A three-minute satire of American TV chat shows which features cameo appearances from fellow New York hardcore outfits Sick of It All and Killing Time. You can't turn on the TV without seeing someone like Geraldo or Donahue doing their thing, explained Civ vocalist Anti Civarelli. We used that as the basis for the video and then built on it, but we wanted to do it with a sense of humour and not make a serious point about those sort of programmes. Members of Sick of It All and Killing Time appear as the TV audience on the video, while Civarelli plays the part of the chat show host. It was more like a family thing, he says, but David Letterman has nothing to worry about. Grant Hart, the ex-Husker Du drummer vocalist, has attacked Therapy over their cover of his Diane, which was recently released as a single. Hart claims that Therapy's record company, A&M, wanted the band to change the line, I think I'll just rape you and kill you instead. But Andy Kens refused to do so until he'd asked Hart's permission. Andy was unable to get through to me, but had he done so, I'd have asked him why he was putting his relationship with his record company in my hands, alleges Hart. In retrospect, it seems like kind of a chicken shit thing to do, kind of asking me to dig his escape tunnel. When I heard their version, it sounds completely different to anything else on their album. I kind of wondered why they hadn't made that departure with one of their own songs. Hart, who has conquered drug and alcohol problems since the breakup of Husker Du, has just released a live acoustic solo album, Eke Homo, on World Service. It follows the disintegration of his most recent band, Nova Mob. The Nova Mob bust-up uh, happened about eight hours before we played in Seattle, he explains. In America, if the band doesn't play it, still Grant's doing this and that again. So I did the gig myself, and we recorded it. American news, starting this week with Donkey in New York. Garbage blew into town this week for one of their first ever live gigs at Irving Plaza and by all accounts the band failed to deliver. The constant complaint was that Garbage seemed more like a studio project than a real band, which apparently translated to a soulless mechanical live performance. A shame, since the album is so good, but either this is too much of a project band to ignite any real chemistry or else they just need to sharpen up with more touring. Last Thursday, Korn, Monster Magnet and 311 played at Roseland, while Henry Rollins did a spoken word show at the 2,000-seat Beacon Theatre. Monster Magnet gave an excellent show, but an early start prevented many from seeing it. The Roseland crowd dug the white boy rap metal grooves of 311 and, to a lesser extent, Korn. Congratulations too to Korn singer Jonathan Davis, whose girlfriend recently gave birth to a son. The band, meanwhile, have bagged the prestigious support slot on Ozzy Osbourne's US tour, which starts in the new year. 
As for Rollins, a packed house heard him talk for two hours, covering such diverse topics as the Grammys, movies, and a spirited defense to those who claim Hank has sold out to the corporate dollar. Mind, three major labels, including Geffen and Work, are reportedly in the race to sign the Rollins band now that they're off Imago. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Reef made their LA debut last week with a short set at the Dragonfly Club. I really can't say what a local audience reaction was uh, like since I got there so late, but the band themselves admitted it wasn't their best show ever. Catching them with a handful of record execs and Pearl Jam's Mike McCready. McCready's been in town laying down some guitar work on the new Screaming Trees record. He also has smashing blonde, new blonde locks, which are very fetching. Rock for Choice are having another big show in LA. Offspring and Rancid will both play their December 8th benefit gig, which is certain to be packed seeing as both bands would sell out the date on their own. San Diego, formerly the next Seattle, has a pack of exciting rock bands coming your way. By now, everyone should have heard of Rocket from the Crypt, their awesome new album Scream Dracula Scream is out in the UK on January 29th, but to fully educate yourself in all facets of San Diego's present musical culture, watch out for Rust and their Dave, Alice in Change, Jane's Addiction, Jordan produced Bar Called Ritual due out on January 11th. Dark and Angry Trio Inch, whose debut album is out in April and was produced by Steve Haggart. Punky skater types Blink, who are on cargo and who've shot an interesting video where they steal money from their sleeping girlfriends, who come to a gig for revenge pouring bullets into the hapless punks, and The Dragons, who sound and look more like a New York band, Circa 77. To those who are paying attention, the band she mentioned there, the punky skater types Blink, who are on cargo, they came to be known as Blink-182, which is a band I'm sure you are all very well aware of. You probably haven't heard much of Fishbone since they were dropped, ironically on the 10th anniversary of their signing from Columbia a year ago. Despite the label trauma, the band are still skanking their way around the globe. Fishbone are currently on tour in the US, they've just done a gig build as the All Scar Show in Anaheim, California. As long as people want to dance, Fishbone will be around. We now join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Courtney Love has been selected by ABC Television as one of the 10 most fascinating people of 1995. The hour-long show, which will air in the US on December 5th, will feature an interview between Courtney and top US TV personality Barbara Waters. Filmed in Love's home in the Swiss Denny Blaine area of Seattle, Courtney dressed up for the cameras in a modest suit and flew her favorite hairdresser up from LA so that she could look her best. Love is also featured in Newsweek magazine's list of the most important people uh, of the year. She joins the usual ranks of politicians, sports stars and actors. Love is pictured on the opposite page to friend star Courtney Cox under the heading Good Courtney, Bad Courtney. Bad Courtney finally got the remaining assault charges against her thrown out in Orlando, Florida after her court appearance. She said Florida was a violent state where rock musicians often get into trouble. Even the state of Florida is shaped like a gun, she quipped. Soundgarden and the presidents of the United States of America both gave interviews to fans on the internet last weekend. Soundgarden answered questions about their forthcoming CD Plus release, Alive in the Super Unknown. The band will issue two versions of the disc here later this month. The first, a standard CD EP, will include She Likes Surprises, an acoustic version of Like Suicide, Fell on Black Days and a cover of Jerry Garcia's Finger. The second, an interactive CD, will feature all of the above tracks except Finger and will also include exclusive interview clips, photos, free video clips, a video game, nine interactive sites and a specially recorded 40-minute jam. 
The president, meanwhile, went online after performing Lump on The Late Show with David Letterman. Sometimes Seattle's supergroup Hater, they were formed by Soundgarden's Matt Cameron, have indirectly been attacked by a leading figure in the US government for glorifying marijuana use. They appeared on the pro-legislation album Hempalation alongside the Black Crows. The album was attacked by Dr. Lee Brown in a speech to entertainment executives in Hollywood. He urged them to be more mindful of the impact on America's impressionable youth that TV, films and advertisements have and to exercise some self-censorship. He said recent surveys showed a serious increase in the use of marijuana and other drugs among high school students. On location, I've been thinking I probably need a, a musical um, uh, introduction to the on location bit if this is going to be a regular thing in Kerrang. I've got no idea what I could do. Any suggestions, send them on a postcard to the usual address. This week, Jason Arnott hops on a London sightseeing bus with New Yorker's Life of Agony. Life of Agony want to kill somebody. Sitting in their London hotel foyer, electricity buzzes violently through the air. The Brooklyn Bunch have just started their European tour in support of their fine second album Ugly. Problem is, their new tour bus is barely large enough to hold diminutive singer Mina Caputo, let alone 14 odd people. The hire company insists there are no replacements available. Yeah, like fuck, Life of Agony would appear to have been fleeced. Maybe we bring all this shit on ourselves having a name like we do, grimly smiles Joey Z. LOA guitarist and cousin of Mina. Perhaps we should change it to Life of Loveliness. Drummer Sal Abruscato, formerly of type of negative, is particularly stressed, becoming very quiet and removed. He is the kind of menacing figure you'd stay well clear of on a deserted New York subway. Kerrang having a heart of gold and all that, we suggest the perfect remedy to lift the quartet's black cloud, a London bus tour. Hey, that'll do the trick and no mistake. In different faces all around, Frankly, Life of Agony look like they'd rather have their toenails removed with red-hot pincers. Nevertheless, they climb into taxis where we head for a pickup point at Hyde Park Corner. While waiting for the bus, Life of Agony regards Speaker's Corner, the speech maker's Sunday haunt where apes, pigs and spacemen's Paul Miro had a go months back, especially for Kerrang! with amusement. But we're soon sitting on the roof of an open-top double-decker, Life of Agony squashing unenthusiastically into the back. Sal still looks like he's going to a funeral. Never mind, a bit of Piccadilly Circus action will cheer them up no end. By the time we get there, Mina is leaning over the side of the bus and gobbing onto unexpected pedestrians. A drive-by spitting, if you will. Nearly got one, she chuckles. Then leans back over, clearly relishing the imagined feel of being a Sex Pistols back in 79. You fucking wankers. Life of Agony's spirit is rapidly ebbing back and Joey is soon thinking of stealing the tour guide's microphone and calling everybody cunts. He doesn't, but the thought is mischievous. This is more like it, even Sal manages to laugh when Kerrang! photographer Ray Palmer jokingly tells him he looks sexy. It's decided, however, that the tour should end after Trafalgar Square. The band aren't enjoying it that much, after all. The thought of their tiny tour bus is still creeping back into their heads and winding them up. Time for a drink. Seconds after locating a tourist pub, Mina is accosted by an elderly Irish drunkard wrapped in a blanket who makes several attempts at garbled communication. Mina politely asks them to repeat, to no avail. Finally, this sort of sobriety instructs the singer to fuck off and walks off. Mina's face creases with laughter. That's nothing compared to New York. Drink-handed, Life of Agony are keen to point out they're not a hardcore band. Indeed, Ugly goes way beyond free-called fuggery, often reaching a poignancy that threatens to provoke tears on tracks like the brilliant Let's Pretend. I don't play hardcore and I don't like it, grumbles sound. Where the hell are you going to go with hardcore? We're going to be around for years and be a household name. The next press guy that calls this record hardcore is going to get beat up. Oh, sorry. 
Beavis, you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Next up in Kerrang! we have Lives. The first concert that's reviewed this week is Bush, live at the Wedgwood Rooms Portsmouth on Tuesday, November 21st. Reviewed by Liz Evans, this one gets 4 out of 5. The Americans know a thing or two about rock music. They devour blood-curdling, guitar-driven frenzy, hence Bush's massive stateside success. In Britain though, the climate grows a little colder for those received well across the Atlantic. Bands who export their talents to tumultuous applause in the US are frowned upon, treated with suspicion, even held in contempt and viewed in as inauthentic. Funny really, because show a Britain and American band made good and they'll come over all hungry. Despite the initial frost on their home turf, Bush are now burning through. They're not playing to adoring throngs just yet, but if tonight was anything to go by, it might just be a matter of time. Portsmouth is Bush's first stop on their brief tour of Britain. It's a weekday, but the venue is crammed, bodies are sweating and feet are restlessly shuffling. The minute they've all been waiting for bursts open like a ripe peach with the arrival of Bush on stage, and a sea of raised hands accompanies a thick wave of cheering as the returning heroes launch themselves into the first of a string of earnest, impassioned, glorious tunes. It's loud and clear that, finally, Britain is responding to their finest inheritors of Nirvana's legacy. Butch's massive sound is instantly accessible, dangerously infectious and absolutely impossible to resist. They deliver perfectly, pouring out the power of a paradoxical mixture of effortless charm and emotional angst, without descending down the bleak corridors of complaint rock. Gavin Rossdale's songs twist all the knots in the right places, yet drag the mood way high with huge sonic surges. The effect is truly awesome, and the crowd immerse themselves into it from head to toe. Machine head explodes like a nail bomb. Body ripples with sex and tension. Little Things goes off like a rocket and new number Greedy Fly shows a promising glimpse of continued developments. Same lethal ingredients, new but just as exciting blend. Bush eventually disappear to a roar of protest before Gavin returns alone to offer a moving rendition of Glycerine and the band rejoining for the colossal force of everything zen. Things wind down with a powered up cover of R.E.M.'s The One I Love and a heaving, drenched audience yell, clap, stamp and whistle as Bush make their goodbyes. The best gigs are the ones which get you in the hips as well as the toes, the heart as well as the head, the soul as well as the body. Bush managed all this and more. People danced, sang, threw themselves about like maniacs and met the band's outpourings head on. Steamrolled into the night once the doors were open like a physical manifestation of satisfaction. Don't ever say the Yanks are stupid. The next review is for Whale at the Boardwalk Manchester, Tuesday, November 15th. Reviewed by Paul Travers, this one gets 3 out of 5. Sex, throbbing, pulsating, glistening sex. That's what Whale like to sing about. And as if to prove the point, the first words sung when they uh, come on stage are young, dumb and full of cum. But then Whale are Swedish, so it was either sex, suicide or final countdowns. Vocalist Sia Berg is a teenager's wet dream given access to a stage and even manages to make full-on headbanging look sexy. She also supplies a wonderfully silky croon and adds the glamour to a band that otherwise looks like a bunch of brickies with Aid Edmondson on guitar. Musically, the excellent hobo-humping Slobo Babe with its raunchy groove and shout-along chorus is as raucous as things get. Elsewhere, they just seriously bounce and produce what sounds like 70s porn funk channeled through big guitars. The songs are played with muso efficiency and occasionally descend into swirling mood pieces. Swell too much and you're liable to spiral inwards and disappear up your own ass. But thankfully both the quality of most of the songs and the brevity of the set stops that from happening tonight. So in just 40 minutes Whale managed to combine sweet pop melodies with raunch and roll, quirky, funk, simple acoustic moments and occasional oral chaos. 
The result is not mind-blowing, but it's certainly not bad going for a band that only formed as a one-song project. The next review is for Doggy Dog, live at the Camden Palace, London on Tuesday, November 21st. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 4 out of 5. Cool, a band who walk it like they talk it. Finding themselves with a free night in London while en route to the MTV Awards, Doggy Dog forego a relaxing night in a hotel and slip in a low-key gig to kick it just for fun. Nice one, yank blokes. Fun, this most certainly is. The New York crew have been touring non-stop since the release of All Borough Kings and they're now a shit-hot live band. Even with a new drummer just installed, the sound is tighter than the camel's ass in a sandstorm. King of the Good Times vibe is vocalist John Connor. He leaps, he crowd surfs, he refuses a half-time shirt swap with a sweaty fan and he pumps the manic crowd higher and higher for hip-hop party rock grooves. Tonight, the doggies rock the house mercilessly. We get if these are good times, fat and funky kicked up the ass by rhino-sized bass lines and two truly obese guitars. We get in the doghouse with those rich saxophone melodies pumping through its core and we get tons of carefree stage divers. So many that the band can barely move on stage. In fact, the crowd are so up for it that they even stage dive in the gaps between songs, much to the band's amusement. We're also treated to three or four samples of the doggy's new shit. Sore Loser is bouncy and punky. Bulletproof is a big shorts mad as monkey stomper, while another one about sexism, racism and some other isms boasts a soon-to-be classic line, take your jism out of my ear. Spunky stuff indeed. Naturally, we also get the MTV faves, who's the king and no fronts. Bodies all over the stage, band careering through the chaos, gleefully dropping elasticated riffs onto sweaty heads. Not many bands can inspire this sort of reaction. If every dog has its day, then right now these cheerful canines are riding the crest of a wave. At the end of a stage, Diver drops to his knees in front of Connor and bows in true Wayne's World fashion. You're worthy, man, Connor reassures him. No one looks too convinced. Doggy Dog will be delighted that they gave the TV a miss for one night. This was a great show. No gimmicks, no tricks, and you know where you can shove your soapbox politics. Paradise Lost, supported by Misery Loves Company. This one took place at the Elysee Montmartre on, in Paris on Saturday, November 18th. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, he gives this one a 4 out of 5. A clutch of American shows have honed Misery Loves Company down to a well-oiled killing machine. Tonight, despite a partial volume restriction to 104 decibels, the Swedes reduced this thousand-strong crowd to mush. Part of the band's appeal undoubtedly lies in their versatility, as they stomp from the mechanically pounding Kiss Your Boots to the darkly mellow Happy and the filth-punk overload of The One Way. All members are also equally lively on stage now. Greatness beckons. Unlike other flash-in-the-pan Brit rockers, Paradise Lost are still here, and their fanbase appears to be growing comfortably. Although England is traditionally supposed not to care about them, there's a coachload of fans from Milton Keynes here tonight with a Union Jack flag. The reduced volume actually benefits the Bradford boys in terms of sound clarity. An enchantment rolls out before us all in its grand splendour. From here on in, we get a heady dose of material from this year's Draconian Times album, sprinkled with songs from its two immediate predecessors, Icon and Shades of God. The band's first two albums are now ignored live, which is a shame when it comes to long-time crowd favourites from Gothic. Some might prefer hearing an old diamond like Eternal to a few of Icon's less striking moments, but Paradise Lost will always do as they please. It's probably one of the reasons why they, and guitarist Aaron Aidy in particular, still appear to love their trade. The encore is a super strong trio of tunes which Paradise Lost can now label their greatest hits. 
the souped-up Sisters of Mercy impersonation as I die, true belief, and what is perhaps Paradise Lost's finest moment the last time. It's tempting to say that France ain't worthy of Paradise Lost. Whoops, just did it. The last review this week is for Down By Law, supported by Burning Heads at Highbury Garage London on Thursday, November the 9th. This one is reviewed by Razel and he gives this 3 out of 5. Don't know if it's their frog's legs, but Frenchie support act Burning Heads had great jumps. Every song would have this punctuated boom at the beginning for the band to scissor kick to. Impress the hell out of one Ricky Warwick in attendance. Equally, West Coast punk vets down by law were no slouches when it came to frenetic speedball ditties, but were decidedly less dynamic in the presentation department. And after having witnessed uh, of late the adrenaline activated likes of the Wild Hearts, Ash, Super Suckers and Sugar Ray, one was left wanting. Down by law pushed their I was a punk before you was a punk correctness to a respectably half full garage with a playful between some side swipes of Offspring and Green Day. But I'd take the go for the throat antics of a latter day pretender over the we can just shuffle around a bit because we've got cred policy down by law employ any day. Maybe I was unfamiliar with materials such as Last Brigade, Punk as Fuck, Punk One and Independence Day, but I'm ever open to being bought, like a sub bad religion or if super suckers had no wacky sense of fun. Down by law were your basic, solid, gutsy, no frills, tight little unit. Alice, what's the matter? We now come to this week's cover stars, Alice in Chains. What's really going on with grunge gods Alice in Chains? Are they splitting up? Are they all dead? In a Kerrang World exclusive, Morat meets the band in Seattle and here's their full story. In a quiet back room at their Seattle management office, Alice in Chains guitarist Jerry Cantrell plays pinball on a machine that pumps out Muzak versions of songs from The Who's legendary rock opera Tommy. Sharp dressed, with sharper reflexes, he abandons his game to welcome bassist Mike Inez into the room. They embrace like brothers and give high fives. Both look healthy and happy. Hang on a minute, this isn't what you expect from members of a band in deep, deep turmoil. Alice, say the whispers, all hate each other, plainly not true. And their third album, the self-titled Alice in Chains, will be their last, unlikely considering that it's just ended the billboard charts at number one. But there's no point paddling in the waters of hearsay when you can go in at the deep end. So I dive straight in and confront them with the most ridiculous rumour of them all. The vocalist Lane Staley, a man with well-documented drug problems, has died and they're keeping it quiet until after the album's released. That's just silly hoots, Jerry. I mean, what do you say to something like that? Lane's fine. He's among the living. He sounds pretty good on the record for a corpse, grins Mike. Well, actually, we all died. It's just that we have such a heavy itinerary that we can't lay down in the box. We used the same company that replaced Paul McCartney and Motley Crue bassist Nicky Six. They did all of us. Actually, I'm not Mike Inez. I'm Marty Feldstein, life insurance. Can we talk? He smiles, slipping into sales spiel. Are you prepared for the inevitable? Everyone dies, you know. How do such rumours affect the band? It's a piss-off, shrugs Jerry. But what do you do? Don't worry about it. Over the years of taking shots, adds Mike, we've discovered that it's out of your control anyway. So what's the point in getting stressed out? I remember reading in the fine pages of Kerrang that Lane was in a new band with some dude. So we talked to Lane and he didn't even know who the guy was. It was pretty fucking hilarious, smirks Jerry Cantrell. I remember taking um, Kerrang over to Lane's house like, hey man, check out your new band. Kerrang can be kind of sensational sometimes, but that's all right. I'm kind of sensational myself. Does it put pressure on Alice to come up with the goods when there are so many rumours about the band? 
No, it makes it easier because there's more shit to write about, says Jerry. I think the music business in general can be real tough. They're especially good at kicking you when you're down. But that's okay. It's kind of like here today, gone later today. We've been real lucky. Our fans have really stuck by us for a lot of shit. We've definitely had our naysayers against the band, but we've also had a lot of great people supporting us through it all, who are always at the gigs and buy the albums and stuff. That's fucking great. You can't beat that. So I've got nothing to complain about. They send us get well cards, smiles Mike, and that makes you feel really good. But it also makes you feel like, fuck you, I'm fine, laughs Jerry. It does seem though, as if Alice in Chains almost have a missing year. Well, we've been working since January on this record, man. That's almost a year, Jerry points out. Also, Lane did Mad Season, Mike did some stuff with Slash, Sean Kinney and I did some stuff with country and western legend Willie Nelson, so we've been keeping at it. Plus, we've been settling down a bit, buying a place to fucking live. We've all been couch sleepers for years, you know, shuffling between people's houses. I've lived with people I don't even know. We had to step uh, kind of away from each other, says Mike. Buy houses, see our families, relax, buy animals. Actually, chuckles Jerry, we've burned houses and fucked animals. In fact, Cantrell bought a house 45 minutes outside of Seattle, far enough out of town that people can't just drop in without calling first, and remote enough that he can let off sticks of dynamite in the backyard without bothering the neighbours. I put it to him that Alice in Chains will take a while to grow on fans. The first play is difficult to say the least. I agree, nods Jerry. It's definitely a two listens record. I talked to my brother yesterday and he said, man, I fucking hated it the first time I heard it. It took him about a week or two to get it. Now he likes it. If you've got to dig that deep into it, then that's great. At least it's a little interesting. Instead of, okay, here it is. What's next, you know? My favourite records definitely take a couple of listens. Appetite for Destruction was like that. I fucking hated that record, Jerry recalls ruefully. I couldn't understand why there was so much buzz on it. Like, why does everybody like this fucking band? I had that record for two weeks and actually tried to give it away. Then I went out, got fucked up, sat down and listened to it one more time, and then I got it. That's the last record that did that to me. I don't buy many records, he adds, almost apologetically. There seems to be a lot of subliminal stuff on your new album, things that you only hear through headphones. Was it your intention to get people sitting there going, hey, what was that? No, says Jerry, our intention was just to make a good record. And after that, if there's stuff that's interesting to you, then that's just more icing on the cake. It's not intentionally put down to fuck with people. I'd say we're probably more of an impulse band than a thought band. It's just going with your instinct. If it feels good, do it. We're very explosive and compulsive, chimes in Mike. It's like four components to the nuclear bomb and you put them together. As a matter of fact, we were just hanging out um, off New Zealand, Jerry interrupted in rather poor taste. Jesus, that's scary. Bearing that in mind, aren't Alice lyrics a little introspective when there's so much shit going on in the world? Oh fuck man, I live in the world, I didn't make it, exclaims Jerry. All I know is, I don't know shit. I know there's some purpose in God or something, and I also know that I'm not it. You've got to do your own bit in your own way. I myself am the master of all things, announces Mike pretending to be God. Oh really, infuses Jerry. I've been looking to ask you a few things for years. Contrary to popular opinion, Alice in Chains are not miserable, tortured souls, pasty-faced and strung out on drugs the whole time. They just like to party like a proper rock band should, indulging in whatever is offered and getting thrown out of bars and strip joints. Tonight, Inez and Cantrell plan to do just that. It is clear they have a great friendship, something you can't fake for an interview. If you don't have that, you won't last very long, agrees Jerry. When you get the first turn of bad weather, you can't just jump ship. You've got to batten down and hang on, man. That's where our band's always been. It's a group of good buddies and that's cool. The band stick together throughout. 
It's no secret that Lane has drug problems, but unity is everything. I've known Lane all my life, so nothing's new to me, says Jerry cautiously. We all have problems. We're not perfect and he gets singled out. He was pretty open and honest about it on Dirt, which is probably why he chose not to really say anything else. It's hard to go through that shit, but I will. I'll go to the end of the earth for the guy. We went through every shade of the emotional spectrum making this record, says Mike. But the one thing I've learned throughout this recording process is the meaning of friendship and finding what's superficial in life and what's not. The first line that Lane wrote in New Song Frogs, What does friend mean to you? A word so wrongfully abused. I'm an only child, but I know what it is to have three brothers now, to go to hell with them and come out the other end. But Lane still writes lyrics about death. Doesn't that just fire rumours? That's not new for us lyrically, argues Jerry. I think we've always toyed with that whole vibe. We've never really changed the slant that we've got. And it's always been pretty harsh, straight in your face, you know. We're not pulling too many punches. I think this album's got a little more of a sense of humour about the whole thing. This album's pretty open, but you can take a lot of things a lot of different ways. There's a lot of multiple meanings to a lot of it. You seem to be taking a few slide digs at people. Sure, we're having fun with it, smiles Jerry. Fuck it, we're in a rock band, man. It's the best gig to fucking have, and it's also one of the most insane. And insanity's part of the deal in some bizarre way. Affirms Mike. We're an honest band. What you see is what you get. But on the other hand, we're not on some soapbox preaching to the world about uh, saving the fucking seal or whatever. I think one of the most magical things is that it just happens. I think the magical thing about our band is the odours, giggles Jerry. If there were Grammys for that, we would have won one by now, beams Mike. Alice in Chains have been nominated for two Grammys, once in 91 and again this year. They lost both times. Both Jerry and Mike dissolve into fits of laughter and a series of bad fart jokes. Put any two members of the band in the same room and they find it hard to stay serious. Indeed, at times it comes close to a comedy double act with a pair feeding off each other, bordering on beavers and butthead territory. It's the kind of gas that turns your hair red, hoots Mike. But you're okay, he howls, turning to me. I see you've already smelt it. It takes a while to restore order and get back to Lane's lyrics. Do the rest of the band understand them, or they look at some and go, what the hell is he on about? Fuck, I do that all the time, reveals Jerry. It's cool though, it's coming from him. As a matter of fact, I was over at his pad about four days ago and he was saying, yeah man, I had to go back and re-listen to some of the shit I was saying. He was kind of tripping on himself. Lane was listening to it again and I was asking him what it was about and 60% of it was totally lost. Whatever you get out of it, that's what it's about, offers Mike diplomatically. We're too lazy to write Tommy or The Wall. We're just a fucking rock band. No songs will be written today. Alice and Chains are in good spirits and before we adjourned to a local bar, the Central Tavern where Nirvana and Soundgarden once played, and where Alice played at least 50 to 100 gigs in their early career, I ask if the band's reputation precedes them. Surely it must be a pain in the arse at customs if you're known as a druggy band. Yeah sure, nods Jerry, but we made our bed. It's nothing to cry about. It tends to follow us around a bit. It's like a magnet. We attract bizarre shit. It doesn't matter where you're at. You could be at the fucking North Pole and some guy will show up with a bag of weed going, hey, I'll party with you. You never know when it's going to happen. It's always when you least expect it. But we're open to just about anything. Like I said, weird shit follows us around. It isn't our fault. Yeah, grins Mike. That should be your cover line. It's not our fault. We're sorry we're us, smiles Jerry. It's not our fault. We now come to the feature formerly known as Communication, Feedback. On Friday, November the 10th at the Brixton Academy, I witnessed the greatest rock band in the world, 
I am, of course, referring to that venerable metal machine, Iron Maiden. They fucking well raised the roof with the best cuts from their new album, The X Factor, and loads of the classics. Blaze Bailey fucking rocked and Bruce Dickinson was not missed. My Dying Bride opened superbly. They incorporate violin and piano sounds into their extreme music and it fucking well worked. Back to Maiden, and it has to be said that some of their newer songs might sound average on record, but live they were absolutely awesome. Songs like Fortunes of War and The Sign of the Cross will undoubtedly, given time, be up there with the old popular Maiden material such as The Trooper, Hallowed Be Thy Name and Fear of the Dark. In short, Maiden were fucking brilliant, and when they started playing The Evil That Men Do, a shiver went up my spine. It was so good. Up the irons, Dave Murray's sweatband, Haze. There is no way I could let this pass without writing to you. Over the last year, I have seen more than 30 bands, but recently I saw the best gig of my life namely Poor at Glasgow Garage. I've become a massive fan of the band since seeing them play at the Reading Festival, but they absolutely blew me away in Glasgow. I was also fortunate enough to meet poor vocalist Mark Hennessy before the gig, and he was great, a breath of fresh air, in this age of the anti-star. And the band played an hour of fantastic music, culminating in a quite amazing cover of Nirvana's School, which Kurt would have been proud of. I believe I've seen and met a band whose hard work deserves much more success than they've achieved so far. And to top it all, they dedicated Max the Silent to me. Cheers, boys. Robert Dempsey, Levin. I've got something to say to the outlaw scumfuck, Crane572, who complained about articles on three of my favourite bands, Green Day, Offspring and Rancid. I'm totally into these bands, and at the moment, Kerrang is one of the few magazines that writes about them, which you do quite well, though not as frequently as I'd like. So Outlaw, why not fuck off and respect the fact some readers don't just want to read about dodgy metal bands, but about bands with cred. Oh, and can we have a few features on Dog Eat Dog, No Effects and Pennywise from time to time. Psycho skate punk bitch. I only bought your mag because it had a plastic wrapper on it, otherwise I would have read Malcolm Dome's review of Richie Blackmore's Rainbow for free, but I feel I must say something about it. Firstly, Dome is obviously a loser as he chose the wrong night to see the band. Secondly, calling the current lineup the worst incarnation of the band, bollocks. Anything minus Jolin Turner is progress. I agree that the drum and keyboard solos were bloody annoying, but to bitch on about it as if Rainbow were the only band guilty of this was a little bold. I don't think Richie has any illusions about being relevant to the 90s. Two shows in the UK are proof that he's content to tour elsewhere. To readers who didn't catch the shows, but read Malk's review, don't believe a word, it wasn't that bad. Neil Ferguson, Aberdeen. Please could someone tell the critics of the Foo Fighters album cover to piss off and give him a fucking break? Every time he does anything, some prick says it's a blow off to Kurt, or it's tasteless given the sad nature of Kurt Cobain's death. It's a gun on the cover, so bloody what? When Dave Grohl said, I don't owe you anything on the song, I'll stick around, again someone said it was directed at Kurt. Can he not do anything without being criticised for it and having it tied in with Kurt? Leave Dave alone to continue his life. Long live the Foo Fighters and Dave's work. Rona Halfpenny from Lolbenstown. In the last year, I've had a rough time of it. I came to the end of a long relationship, spent loads of money I haven't got on a motorbike, crashed it, and consequently now have a broken arm and six weeks of guitarless boredom to get through. However, I have to admit to being shattered by the news that Bill Steer has left Carcass. Having heard Generation Hex on the Green Take, I was looking forward to the LP and tour. Despite my grief, I would like to wish both Bill and the remaining members of Carcass the very best of luck for the future. Let's keep Grindcore alive. Gutted. Worthing. Great to read the snippet about former Cro-Mag Harley Flanagan getting a new band together called White Devil. Please keep us up to date in the mag on them. Jay Hallam, 
Preston. Ill communication. Filter tipped. They've sold half a million albums and they're touted as the next big thing. But can American Noise Mob Filter shake off the Terminator 2 and Nine Inch Nails connections? Knife Jason Arnott can help it. Filter are turning out to be the biggest selling band of their electro heavy ilk since Ministry and Nine Inch Nails. Their caustic short bus debut released this summer has already sold over 600,000 copies in America alone. Not bad for an album recorded in someone's parents' basement with an Apple Macintosh computer and a couple of guitars. Not bad for a live band so chaotic that they invariably smash each other's faces in. And certainly, not bad for an album named after the buses that ferry physically and mentally handicapped kids to American high schools. Although both singer-guitarist Richard Patrick and programmer-guitarist Brian Lee's gang were both in Nine Inch Nails for separate periods of 18 months, Short Bus surprisingly doesn't bear a sticker saying features ex-Nine Inch Nails members. Filter have done all of this themselves. What's the story? Demon Knight, the Terminator's brother. The first we heard of Filter was a grippingly tense song on the Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight soundtrack, Hey Man Nice Shot, a great track, but as Patrick and Lee's gang are keen to stress, only a demo. We try to ignore it because it sucks, laughs Lee's gang. We thought it might just be a song kids would hear at the end of the record because they bought it for the Pantera track, but DJs picked Hey Man out and started playing it, then it came out as a single. Richard Patrick, who confesses to having fostered a weird unfocused anger since childhood, is the younger brother of actor Robert Patrick, who so memorably played the liquid metal T-1000 killer in Terminator 2. Robert was at least partly responsible for securing filter their deal. He was friends with a lot of people in the industry, says Lisa Gang. So he passed out some tapes and said, listen to my brother's band. Universal Pictures heard it and put it on the Demon Knight soundtrack before they even contacted us or knew we had a record deal. Ask Patrick about the inspiration for Hey Man Nice Shot and he looks distinctly troubled. I always get tongue tied on that, he says. Basically, something happened and I saw it on the TV news. Someone did something very intense and rash to prove a point. I can't bring him up because I don't want his family to go through that again. It affected me though. Whether it was wrong or right, this guy wanted to make his point. It's a scary topic for me. Nine Inch Nightmare Patrick played guitar with Nine Inch Nails on their Pretty Hate Machine tour in the late 80s. Lee's gang handled programming after Patrick left to do his own thing. Now in their mid to late 20s, they both compare Nine Inch Nails to high school. I definitely learned my lesson from the nails, smiles the intensely studious looking Patrick. One minute I was a little kid, then the next minute I was playing at the enormous Lollapalooza festival in front of thousands. It blew my mind, and I don't want to change like that again. We don't take ourselves too seriously in filter, music doesn't elevate us to be better than other people, and I refuse to have the rockstar mentality that my shit doesn't stink. The frontman hasn't spoken to Nine Inch Nails mastermind Trent Reznor since he left in 93. I still like Trent, and I miss him. But I had to go on and change things in my life, he explains. When I quit, people were like, wow, someone can survive outside of Nine Inch Nails? I lost a lot of friends in that organisation, but I needed to have a happy lifestyle rather than bathing in negativity. I still feel like calling them up to say hi once in a while, but there's still some water under the bridge. Time heals, but it's really not something I worry about. I'd rather avoid the whole rock star entrapment altogether. Fuck Industrial it may be convenient to call Filter an industrial band, but it won't get you on their Christmas card list. Some critics have gone so far as to label them the last industrial band to clamber on the wagon. Prickles Patrick, for the most part, industrial music is a sack of shit. Those critics are pretty stupid because our record isn't industrial at all. If you go back and really listen to stuff like Skinny Puppy Front 242 or Ministry's Land of Rape and Honey, that's what industrial is. My voice has melody and I rarely put it through a distortion pedal. 
The guitar is the main instrument in the band. Computers are just something to facilitate our ideas. We're not just screaming obscenities into the microphone for hours. If we're industrial, shouldn't I have jet black hair down to my ass with tattoos and a thousand genital piercings? Shouldn't I run around with blood all over me? Nowadays, industrial's more of a fashion statement than a musical one, and I'd rather be put in the same genre as Soundgarden or Jane's Addiction. Generation X Filter also hate this term. They're not another bunch of self-pitying slackers. I want people to start thinking again, Franz Patrick. I'm sick of bands singing, I'm a loser, I'm a slacker, and isn't it cool? Our record's like a call to arms. Get off your butt and figure out how life can be different. I fucking loathe people who sit there and bitch and moan. I don't think people need to know about my problems, he shrugs. Kurt Cobain was the most fucked up guy in the world and he killed himself. But he didn't sit there and write every single song about how bad he felt. He picked on himself a lot, but he wasn't constantly saying, me, 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 I'm in pain, I'm a sexual deviant. He wrote stuff like, I'm on a plane, I can't complain. Neither can filter. By next year, they'll probably be a platinum selling band. A lot of our friends do just watch TV and smoke dope, admits these gang. But there's so much other shit you can do. Life's tough, but so fucking what? When we play live, Patrick concludes, our philosophy is to play like we're never going to play again. Who knows? We might have that fatal plane crash the next morning. The posters in this week's Kerrang! are artwork from Therapy, Fear Factory, Corn and Smashing Pumpkins. In my copy of Kerrang! the Corn poster is not there. Obviously that was on my wall. I was... how old was I? I was 14 years old and for me in 95, Corn were the best band. Well, they were about level with Machine Head I'd say. Uh, so yeah, definitely stuck that on my wall. Anyway, let's move on to singles. The singles this week are reviewed by Dave Reynolds. The first single reviewed is First Time by Pusherman. He gives this 3Ks. Fairly hypnotic and dark lead cut entices you further into the strange world that is Pusherman's music. Comparisons to a rockier cross between the Happy Mondays and Primal Scream seem a fair assessment so far as this release is concerned. Can't Wait One Minute More by Siv. This one also gets 3Ks. An endearingly poppy choice for a single with a drum intro that brought back minor memories of Adam and the Ant for a second or two. Siv give much more of themselves in the nastier bonus cut, especially the short but sweet previously unreleased anthem Glue. King Prawn with their single Poison in the Air, this gets 2Ks. If you can imagine the specials gone punk metal, then you'd probably get some idea as to King Prawn's sound. Trouble is, they just don't do this groovy noise thing nearly as well as Dub War. No fun at all with their single in a rhyme. This also gets 2Ks. On a double bill with fellow Swedes Mill and Colin in the UK in December, No Fun At All offer up inoffensive pop punk that tends to go in one ear and out the other. Though to their credit, No Fun At All do have a penguin on their Out Of Bounds album cover. The Story Of My Life by Mill and Colin. This one gets 2Ks. These Swedes are selling some serious units throughout Europe and they're about to embark on a UK tour with label mates No Fun At All. See left. Mill and Colin have a heavier sound than No Fun At All but they still sound like a cartoon punk band. Perhaps that's the appeal. Down By Law with their single 500 Miles. US hardcore mob cover a Proclaimers song. More pop music masquerading as punk. Seriously, this is okay but there's still nothing really remarkable about it. The Dickies with their single Make It So. This gets 1k. 
Said to have influenced the likes of Offspring et al, the Dickies have got a hell of a lot to answer for. This, it must be said, is not their finest couple of minutes. With a title stolen from Jean-Luc Picard's catchphrase in Star Trek The Next Generation, pedantic bastard I am, for some reason the sleeve features the cast of the original series. And the single of the week this week is Moral Judgment by Small Town Heroes. This one gets 4Ks. Enjoyable jangly guitar pop rock from a band who'll be undertaking a major UK tour this month supporting, of all people, The Stranglers. What's really amusing is that the, there's almost a glam feel to this rather lively it's life that really kills, especially with the Tiger Tales-ish harmony laden chorus, and the third cup has a rhythmic vibe a la poison. Outrageous! Rude, crude, LA rap metal mob Sugar Ray are out to inject some fun back into rock music, or do they just want to shag your sister? Razel investigates. Sexist? Fuck off. It's beauty, declares Sugar Ray frontman Mark McGrath. To those who would deem the cover picture of Sugar Ray's debut album Lemonade and Brownies to be anything other than aesthetically pleasing. Well, if nothing else, the soft focus shot of a naked blonde cavorting seductively on a white fur rug is a refreshing change from the usual computer-enhanced mind-fuck imagery. Easier on the old retinas too. Sugar Ray are LA mirth mongers, dishing up a mixed grill of rock, hip-hop and funk. Backing up McGrath a Rodney Shepard guitar, Murphy Clarge's bass, Stan Fraser drums plus the disc-zapping skills of DJ Lethal. The band's home is a dilapidated mansion dubbed the Murder Farm, due to a double murder that took place there in the 60s, which is about as nice as McGrath's translation of the title Lemonade and Brownies, Piss and Shit. This rap metal thing. Everybody in his skateboard is doing it. New York Brett's dog eat dog of ice their cake with that nutty madness style sax. So what's Sugar Ray's angle on the genre? Well, says Mark, we didn't want to be the token band with a DJ. White guys trying to be hip hop. We don't really exploit the culture. You'll never see us acting hard or walking around saying what's up homies. Hip hop is just something I was raised on and it was natural incorporating it into our music. We're trying not to make it so hip hop meets rock. Our angle is we're still developing. How long have Sugar Ray been smiling, drinking, and as it turns out, shrinky dinking? Three years. We were all friends in high school. We just formed to play keg parties. Up until we were signed, we were called the Shrinky Dinks. But it was the copyright name of a toy, so we had to change it. Plus, the Shrinky Dinks logo looked like it was ripped off of the Burger King logo, so we were getting in trouble from all sides. At one point, our stickers were more popular than the band. Sugar Ray's early days were spent fueling up on beer and blasting out covers of staples by British metal legend Judas Priest and comic book cock rocker Zodiac Mind Warp. I love Zodiac Mind Warp, Mark shamelessly confesses. I saw a review in Kerrang. You said Wipe Zombie should give them a support, which would be a great tour. And I think you're right. Rob Zombie does owe him something. Man, that original Zodiac Mind Warp lineup put on such a good show. They were fabricated, but I don't mind that. I'm not looking to get behind a rock band as my whole life. At least they gave you fucking entertainment, man. They never sold shit in the States, but they were a really cool band to like. So Sugar Ray are not in denial of pre-90s rock. It's ridiculous to deny it. If you bought it and played it, it's there in your collection. If you want to have any kind of success, I think it's important to be yourself and do the unexpected, reckons Stan Fraser. We're trying to bring back the good times of David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth? Yes. David's still in our hearts each and every day, says Stan of the X-Van Halen Party King, who's now playing the Schmaltz Circuit in Las Vegas. 
I'm just so tired of people being pissed off at being able to do what they're doing, says Mark. I'm from that KISS school of, thank God I'm here, man. I'm having the best fucking time. So you'll never hear us crying or being angry, because as far as we're concerned, we're on paid vacation. I mean, I enjoy uh, bands like Nirvana, but it's just not us. We'd be posing if we weren't drinking beer and having fun. Sugar Ray are in the constant pursuit of leisure. Yeah, concur Stan, we're serious about having fun. No Mark begs to differ, we're fucking suicidal about having fun. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Albums, and the album of the week this week is Pride by Living Colour. This one is reviewed by Liam Charles and he gives this one 5Ks. Remember 1988? Halloween was selling out city halls up and down the country. Crimson Glory were considered by some as the next big thing and Kerrang! had rat on the cover. Then Living Colour happened. Over here, it was to take another year and a Faith No More record called The Real Thing, but across the Atlantic, Living Colour's debut album Vivid blew this game wide open. It was switched on, crackling with vitality and righteousness, and it had songs like you've never heard before. Songs like Cult of Personality, Glamour Boys, Funny Vibe, and Open Letter to a Landlord. Sure, that genre hopping trick had been pulled before, but Living Colour sold it to the world and made a thousand bands obsolete overnight. If Vivid was a masterpiece, then Time's Up was truly a gift from the gods. Openly freeform and even more wide-ranging than its predecessor, it took in everything from the full-on thrash of the title track to the gently joyous calypso of Solace of You. And Love Rears Its Ugly Head gave Living Colour their first major British hit single. The third album was called Stain. It was straightened up, trimmed down and frankly less exhilarating than the other two. Still, it did have nothingness, a bittersweet little slice of melancholy that by rights should also have been a monster seller. Then, Living Colour split. Bummer. They say the brightest stars always burn out fastest. Pride is their epitaph, and like all compilations, best ofs and tributes, it will totally satisfy almost no one. Some will bemoan the lack of which way to America, while others will point out, with some justification, that the studio doodle WTFF is a complete waste of space. Really though, you could assemble an album called The Worst of Living Colour and it would still be a bona fide five star platter. And Pride is by no means the worst. Not with all the tunes we've mentioned so far, plus type, memories can't wait, and four unheard takes from the last ever studio sessions, of which release the pressure is the best. And the cruelest taste of what might have been. Next up we have Taiketo with their album Shine. Reviewed by Steve Beebe, he gives this one three Ks. Some will be astonished to hear that Taiketo have chosen to carry on without vocalist Danny Vaughan. The former wasted frontman lost faith in the band shortly after their last UK tour and packed his bags. On this, the third Taiketo album, Vaughan's distinctive voice and songwriting traits have been banished and the difference is marked. Though still peddling harmless melodic rock, Taiketo nevertheless sound like a completely new band. It's for this reason that Shine needs repeated plays before it sinks in. But sink in it does. New singer Steve Elgary, formerly of Tall Stories, is more likely to be mistaken for Steve Perry than for Vaughan. He's a completely different kind of frontman, but has ample power and finesse to make up on lost ground. The obvious chunky melodies that Taiketo have thrived on in the past have been replaced by more subtle hooks and a richer, bluesier feel. New songs like Jamie and Radio Mary have a seductive charm that matures with time. It's only a tuneless macho bummer called Raw Fight and the tedious ballad I Won't Cry that truly disappoint here. 
That said, Taiketo Mark II have failed to come up with anything as good as Forever Young or Rescue Me. Standards from the last two albums, they have a damn good trying with a bouncy high and the party rock groove of Let It Go, while the title track itself is a great note to finish on. Though Long Cold Winter is an effective slice of moonshine adult blues rock as you'll hear all year, you'd never identify it as a Taiketo song. On the whole, Shine has plenty of merit but will still prove a difficult pill for existing fans to swallow. The band must demonstrate their legendary persistence if they are to shine on. The last album reviewed this week is Greed Killing by Napalm Death. Reviewed by Jason Arnop, he gives this one 4Ks. The biggest surprise about this 7-track mini-album, acting as a prelude to the next year's Diatribes album, is that it sees Napalm Death maintaining the lineup they had on 1994's Fear, Emptiness, Despair album. It has been no secret that Napalm Death have had their fair share of internal musical disputes. Barney Greenway wants them to stay intense and true to the band's original ideal, while the band's longest-serving member, bassist Shane Embry, fancies some changes. No problems are evident here. This mini-LP features two tracks from the forthcoming Diatribes album, plus four exclusive tracks and a live version of Plague Rages. The new studio tracks show that Napalm have broadened their horizons when Greed Killing itself begins with a melody. You stand back in amazement. It's one of the more memorable Napalm tracks because it doesn't just wallow in the darkest chords imaginable. The four exclusive studio tracks are thankfully no mere throwaway outtakes, displaying instead Napalm's newfound versatility. Self-Betrayal is a slow sludger, while Antibody is a fantastic blaster with some of the band's best ever riffs. You'll love the sound of Napalm in the morning. Tight-ass moaning bastard. Is Paradise Lost singer Nick Holmes really miserable and materialistic, or is he just kidding? Jason Arnott finds out. It's hard to believe that Paradise Lost were once a growly underground death metal band playing tiny clubs like Liverpool's Planet X. Over the course of eight years, five albums and many tours, they have metamorphosed into a band with its own heavy gothic sound and widespread European appeal. As is so often the way, the Bradford five-piece, that's Nick Holmes vocals, Gregor McIntosh lead guitar, Aaron A.D. rhythm guitar, Stephen Edmondson bass and Lee Morris drums are less popular in their home country than elsewhere. But to German crowds, for example, they are rock icons. With this in mind, you can't help wondering just how much Paradise Lost are worth, how far can they go, and will they ever completely conquer Blighty? When Paradise Lost formed, did you have big goals in mind? Absolutely not. If you start a band with that in mind, you'll probably fail miserably. Any little success you get would immediately go to your head if you started with that attitude. Nope, we were grateful just to get a gig. It was just a laugh at first and we just wanted to do what our favourite bands did. A very sincere start. At first it was just me and Greg really, and Tuds, ex-drummer real name Matthew Archer replaced by Lee Morris this year. Aaron didn't come along until a bit later on. Actually, we didn't get on with Aaron at first because he once wrote Paradise Lost a Shit on Tuds' wall. He joined the band about three months later, but we were shit at that point. It took us six months to get anything together. It took us ages to write songs because no one could play a fucking thing. Your musical style at the time was anything but commercial. Yeah, we used to play hyper speed stuff, but we stopped doing that because Tuds couldn't play hyper fast for more than about 30 seconds. How much cash did you get for your first gig? Well, a couple of times we actually paid a tenner each to play some Frog and Toad pub in Bradford. We were frightened the landlord might beat us up. Although I remember I got out of putting my tenner in the pot. Another night we got £1.25 each for the gig, which I spent on beer. We basically used to play for that. The first gig we ever did was promoted by the bass player from Loud, who's now in hardware. 
We used to rehearse at the same studios where his band used to rehearse. I remember I went up to Steve's house and we got pissed before the show. We were terrified. But it basically turned into a slanging match between us and the crowd. We played for about 15 minutes. Then for about 20, I just gave the fucking crowd some shit. So when did Paradise Lost stop being a drunken laugh and get ambitious? Around the time we did the tour with fellow Peaceville death metal crew Autopsy. After our first album came out, that was when we thought, oh, it's starting to get a bit serious now. We always had a UK hardcore mentality and we mainly used to play with those kinds of bands. I think the punk rock attitude still reflects a lot of the way we are now. We've never been into a pretentious glam metal thing. When you signed to Peaceville Record, did it feel like you'd hit the big time? I remember label boss Hammy saying we'd sold 10,000 records and us going fucking hell. It was quite a lot for the time but I think he was lying anyway just to make us feel better. When did you see the financial reward for your craft? Well, we've been professional for about three years, which means we've had a wage. Before that, we used to sign on or do part-time jobs. I've never had a full-time job, but the worst thing I did was washing up for three years. But I just hated not having any money and didn't want to sit on my ass. For about two years, we'd occasionally fuck off abroad and tour for three weeks, get some gig money and split it. That kept us going. Then we got management. Has success bred envy in others? Well, some fans have said we sold out, but we don't get that too much now. There was one bloke in Italy on this tour who kept asking why we've changed. It's like, oh for fuck's sake, what are you supposed to say when someone asks you why you don't sound like your first album anymore? Have you ever actually desired fame? Mm, yeah, to a certain degree, I enjoy it and I don't enjoy it. I'd hate it if I thought people didn't recognise me, but at the same time, I don't like getting hassled. It depends on my mood. But in this business, you're supposed to be a fucking nice guy all the time. Funny thing is, everyone thinks this miserable thing of ours is an image, but it's for real. What's the most expensive thing you've bought with Paradise Lost Cash? My house, really. I didn't buy it outright, though. I got a mortgage like everyone else. I haven't earned that much. The financial thing is a bit of a myth, really. You might be in a magazine at this level, but you certainly don't earn the kind of money I always thought bands did. Even when bands look like they must be fucking raking it in. Their debt to the record company ultimately means they're earning fuck all. We've never really gone overboard on expenses. We don't fucking blow our money on clothes and rubbish like coke. What a waste of money. Our manager once told Aaron off for chucking too many plectrums in the crowd. They're 50 quid a bag or something. Manager Andy's got a tight purse, but it's good in a way. Were you brought up to be cautious with money? Yeah, my parents put a lot of money into a corner shop and they eventually lost a lot of it. It was a shame, a horrible thing. It definitely makes me wary about what I do with money now. How big can Paradise Lost get and how big do you want it to? When you're out on the road touring, you lose a grip on what's going on. You can only judge how many people turn up to shows. On this tour, the crowds have got bigger, but so have the expenses of the fucking production we take out. I couldn't see us headlining American stadiums, but then again, Metallica probably said that once. Anyway, everything could crumble around your ears at any moment. The general public decides how big you are, so you've just got to do what you believe in. My attitude isn't any different to when I started. I wouldn't want to write an album full of fucking pop songs, even if we got really big off the back of it. Charts and the number one album this week is Made in Heaven by Queen. Number one in the singles chart is Lie to Me Bon Jovi and number one in the indie LPs chart is Ugly by Life of Agony. The reader's chart this week comes from The Spoon Man from Bath. His chart um, begins, one, linoleum, no effects, two, news of the world, the wild hearts, three, every single day, Pennywise, four, old friend rancid, five, up to my neck in you, ACDC, six, God Save the Queen, sex pistols, 
Seven, who wrote Holden Caulfield, Green Day, Eight Naked Reef, Nine, Sir Sexy Psycho, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Ten, Trigger Inside Therapy. The star tracks this week come from Napalm Death's Shane Embry. His chart begins one, I'm landing in the sea, the cardiacs. Two, anything by Skinny Puppy. Three, Manic Compression Quicksand. Four, anything by Coil. And five, anything by the Swans. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. Knock, knock, we're there. Hanging out backstage with Ozzy Osbourne, Ash, Skid Row and Bush. The real story behind life on the road in 1995. Garbage, hot as hell, but can they cut it live? Reef, surfing, smoking, and beans on toast. Whale, are they top of the pops? Fear Factory, meet the band at their Kerrang! Christmas show, and Hull, Courtney kisses Vedder's ass. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next Wednesday, so I look forward to talking to you all then. Have a good week, and bye for now.